0: Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and put them against each other inside the ring. ring, ring dead, dead. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a child. I'm a mother. I'm a sinner. I'm a saint. I do not feel ashamed. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm (laughs)
1: Kev and I'm concerned. (laughs) Do you feel ashamed? No more shame than I usually feel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fine. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. We start a new Clash this week. It is the latest in our season of Famous Musical Cities. We have left Detroit now, and we are on to New York. This week, we are going to go through The Strokes' debut album, Is This It?, from 2001. And next week, Kev, you'll be taking us through... Interpol's uh, debut album, Turn On The Bright Lights. Indeed. So, my choices. And um, should I explain, apart from the New York connection, should I explain why I picked these two? Yeah, I think I think it's uh, right The obvious one is that they're both instrumental in the the revival of guitar music after something of a lull in the late 90s after the death of Britpop etc and we've mentioned about the Strokes in particular before but Interpol were very much part of that movement as well (laughs) there's lots of songs on both albums that speak of the frustrations of being in love in your 20s Mm -hmm. but the other thing that I thought would be really interesting is that both albums provide a fascinating snapshot or snapshots, shall I say, of a moment in time in New York with one of them having been recorded pre-9-11 and one of them having been recorded post-9-11. And that very much influences the sound of these two albums. And mm-hmm. I just thought it'd be a really interesting thing to compare the two together.
1: Yeah, there's, whilst... Um... Turn on the Bright Lights was written before uh, 9-11. There's certainly, as you say, the sound is definitely influenced by what occurred and how it impacted upon upon the various members of Interpol. Uh,
0: indeed. Uh, and uh, coming back to this week, the track listing of certainly the U.S. release mm-hmm. of Is This It was uh, affected by what happened at 9-11, but we'll get to that. We will. Before we do get to that, however, Kev, what shite have you had stuck in your head this week?
1: So on the previous Clash, I have praised Dua Lipa for reviving my knowledge of a song that I really liked in the 90s. Unfortunately, she um, has embarked on a collaboration with Elton John relatively recently, which um, includes a, well, Elton John, singing sacrifice.
0: Oh god, no 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 she what she's done a cover of sacrifice. No, so
1: it's it's the song's called Cold Heart, but it's got <sighs> Elton John singing the, in that way. Yeah, and I I hate sacrifice. It's a terrible song.
0: Listen, Elton John did some phenomenal albums in the 70s and we will cover some Elton John stuff uh, at some point on Album Clash, but Sacrifice, sorry, no. <laughs>
1: Blue suit, weird hat, giant crucifix earring. Not a good look. Very much so. Well, it, it, it looked like he'd nicked the hat from Idi Amin. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a proper dictator's hat. <laughs> Which, based on some of the uh, stories about <laughs> how he was, particularly during his coke days. Well, <laughs> you know, if the cap fits,
0: quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Well, I haven't heard that and um, I don't want to... <laughs> No, so I have had Sacrifice. It's stuck in my head. Uh, Mine is... I have no idea why this is stuck in my head. It just is. It's the song Cognoscenti vs. Intelligentsia by the Cuban Boys, otherwise known as the Hamster Dance song from 1999. I'm not sure I know this. Oh, God, you do, Kev. It's the... Oh, fuck. (laughs) There you go. Oh, dear like, God. and the mad thing is that was championed by John Peel, but it's fucking dreadful. Look, Peel didn't get didn't get everything right. He did champion
1: some shite at times, and well, yeah, bah.
0: So yeah, I, I've I've legitimately no idea why that's been stuck in my head, but as you've said before, it's as catchy as a bad case of gonorrhea, and it never <laughs> lets go. It's <laughs> dreadful.
1: Oh, yeah. I I really hope that um, you haven't given me a case of that.
0: (laughs) And it's actually, well, so we're coming up towards Christmas. I remembered that they made an attempt to get it to Christmas number one uh, in the UK, but it it only reached number four. But Mike Flowers Pops did. (laughs) Uh, No, Mike Flowers Pops got to number two. Oh, no, it was number two, wasn't it? Michael Jackson was at number one with his not at all opportunistic and exploitative song about global warming.
1: For a second I thought it was prevented by um E 17s state. No that, that was ninety four ah, E
0: right, seventeen. Okay. That did prevent Oasis Whatever from being Christmas number one, however. Indeed. Anyway, we have strayed quite a way off the subject. Unusually for us. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, what do you want to give a shout to? So again, uh referencing an artist that we have done a clash a clash on and have also had a certainly um members of this band on can't get you out of my head before nick cave and the bad seeds uh recently released well an album you could argue it was contractually obliged or they (laughs) they decided to release it so it's b-sides and rarities part two
0: part two dear me
1: (laughs) sorry really worked on the title there i mean it's 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 nick cave and the bad Seeds, so there's some absolute gold on there um, there's a lovely duet with Debbie Harry on there, but what Ooh. I'm um, gonna bring to the table is the song, Accidents Will Happen, which is, it's just a great piece of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, and um, you know, I love them. I love what they do. They're great and um, check it out because there's there's always good stuff to find in
0: uh, their back catalogue. I will check it out. Um, mine is new, well newish, it was released in September. It was the new single uh, by David Holmes this is a song that he has released uh, featuring Raven not the wrestler <laughs> or the bird <laughs> um, it's called Hope is the Last Thing to Die it's dreamy electro pop with massive sort of early 80s euro electronica influence like think Kraftwerk, think Jean-Michel Jarre that sort of stuff this is lyrics in both English and French and lyrically it's a really really biting criticism of governments around the world, their failure to respond to the climate crisis, their failings during the COVID pandemic, and just general corruption and, and divisiveness within global politics. So the lyrical themes are quite juxtaposed with the sort of dreamy sound of the song, but it goes together so well. It's absolutely brilliant.
1: I've liked um, David Holmes stuff for for a long time, so I will definitely check that out because I'd be I'd be really interested to hear it. And um, obviously, there's nothing going on around uh, the themes and issues that he he's bringing <laughs> up in that song.
0: Yeah, quite. But yes, check those out. We will tweet out the links as we always do. We'll put them on our Insta feed as well, and we will add them not just to our YouTube playlist, oh, but yeah. Kevin it's it's happened although to be fair because of the lag between recording and releasing it had actually happened before the release of our last clash but i didn't get to talk about it because we hadn't at the time of recording yes
1: yes the spotify playlist exists it is a real thing um so if you go to our uh, twitter page the links to the youtube playlist or the spotify one are the pinned tweet so yeah check it out because it's constantly being added to and I I actually listened to the playlist the other day, and it's really good. We have excellent taste. Yeah, I'm very pleased with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, check it out, and uh, let us know what you think of it. Right, that's can't get you out of my head. Shall we do Top Trumps? Yes, let's do it. I'm going to be honest with you, Kev. I fear for you here.
1: Yeah, I'm not hugely confident that this is going to go well for
0: me. Let's see how you do. Well, you won last time, so we are level at four apiece. Uh, and it's your honour.
1: Okay, I'm gonna go with certifications. Okay. So in the US, I was gold. US platinum. Shite. Um,
0: <laughs> UK gold. UK two times platinum. Shite. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not gone well. No. All right. Let's do sales then. Uh, what you got?
1: So it's there's not a precise figure. So it's circa a million.
0: That's good. But it's not circa two million. Sorry.
1: No. It, it very much isn't.
0: All right, okay. Let's do charts then. So, is this it? In the UK, got to number two. Not, not so successful. One hundred and one. Wow, I, I, I didn't expect it to be number two, or probably even top ten, but one hundred and one. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Wow, that is remarkable. I mean, you're going to struggle. US thirty-three.
1: The US is actually worse. It's 158.
0: Ooh, Mind you, it's a, it is a much bigger market in the US, so you could say comparatively 158 isn't as bad as 101 in the UK, but still, you've been... It's not gone well. Well, you're 3-0 down after three, so the best you can do is a draw here, and I don't fancy your chances. No, I don't. All right, let's go awards. What awards, if any, did Turn On The Bright Lights win?
1: It did not win any awards. It was nominated for a VMA in
0: 2003. Is that it?
1: That's
0: it. Wow, okay. So uh, Is This It won three NME awards, including the Best Album and the Best Band. It won the Best International Newcomer at the Brits, and it had two other nominations for Brits in 2002. So, yeah, soz. Uh, Okay, well, I've won. Yeah, really comfortably. I'm going to see if we can get the first ever clean sweep here. Right, I'm going to go Rankings. Okay. I'm going to go NME first. In 2013, the NME listed this as number four in their top 500 albums of all time.
1: Number 130. Ooh. That's not gone well.
0: No. Okay. Do you appear on any of the Rolling Stone top 500 lists? No. Ooh, do you appear on any other lists?
1: Yes, it is on the the Rolling Stones' 2011 Best Albums of the Decade list.
0: Okay, where did it come in that? It came 59th. Oh, okay. I haven't noted down if or where is this. It came on that list, I'm afraid, uh, because I am in all three of the Rolling Stone Top 500 lists. Shite. Uh, yeah, 2003. It was only number 367 by 2012 that had shot up to 199 and then in 2020 it had climbed still further to number 114 so um Hmm. i guess i win again yeah and i am i am quite surprised
1: that given how often it's sort of referred to as like incredibly influential incredibly important Mm -hmm. and for it to not make
0: any lists seems it seems surprising but there you go it does seem surprising Indeed. But I don't care because I've won and I'm 5 0 up, and uh, I might do a little dance if I win the next one, which is Critic Scores. All Music, is this it? Got 5 out of 5. It's out. Rolling Stone, is this it? Got 4 out of 5. 3 out of 5. Ooh, harsh. Yeah. Okay, Pitchfork, 9.1 out of 10. 9.5 out of 10. Oh, so drawn level on this one. It all comes down to the final one I have, which is the NME oh, review. crap. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know what the enemy gave, is this it? Yeah. 10 out of 10.
1: 8 out of 10.
0: Good 6 for 6. He's absolutely whitewashed him. Humiliation.
1: It's a full. Do you know what? It's a full-on ashes walkover. I'm, I'm going to have to have like a special commission. There's going to ha- going to be hearings to to work out why why it worked out so badly for me.
0: Probably something to do with structural racism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am Mitchell Johnson, and I have absolutely rattled your off stump repeatedly. There.
1: <laughs> and that's not a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> Although rattling your off stump is a great euphemism,
0: <laughs> it is actually. <laughs> oh, enough of this smut. Should we start going through? Is this it? Yeah,
1: let's let's do it.
0: I mean, before we do, like you said, given how turn on the bright lights is now regarded, I'm surprised that it didn't at least appear on some uh, some of those top five hundred lists. Um, but there you
1: go. I'd be I'd be intrigued to see whether antics. ...made it onto mm. some of those lists. Because, I mean, Antics is a really good album as well.
0: It is a really good album, but we're not
1: talking about Interpol this week. No, we're not. So we will we will hold back.
0: We will. Uh, what we are talking about this week is The Strokes' debut album, This Is It. And let me start going through the background to the album. As I mentioned earlier, it was their debut album. It was released... Well, it was a staggered release worldwide. Its very first release was in Australia, which was on the 30th of July 2001... In the UK, it was released on the 27th of August 2001 and in the US, it was the 9th of October. That had been pushed back from September. We'll talk about why a bit later on. Uh, It was released on Rough Trade and RCA Records. Recorded uh, between March and April 2001 at the Transporter Realm in New York City. What a great name for a studio. Yeah. And it was produced by Gordon Raphael, who owned the Transporter Realm studio. So, as I generally like to do, I'm gonna go right back to the start of the strokes and give you a little bit of a potted history. Originally formed in 1997, when uh, four childhood friends, Julian Casablancas on vocals, Nick Valenci on guitar, Nikolai Frature on bass, and Fabrizio Moretti on drums, got together in 1998, they became a five-piece when a uh, friend of Julian Casablancas from a Swiss boarding school, Albert Hammond Jr., moved to New York to join. Well, initially to start film school, but was persuaded to join the band as a as a second guitarist. And that sort of change from a four-piece to a five-piece was a bit something of a catalyst for propelling their sound forward. Really,
1: yeah, it gave it a hell of a lot more more depth, really, to mm. it. I suppose that one of the things that you can say about this band is that due to their fairly privileged position and families that they came from is that they were able to dedicate a hell of a lot of time to practicing. So Julian Casablancas, his dad, set up the Elite Model Agency. Oh. And obviously Albert Hammond Jr. was his mate from a Swiss boarding school. <laughs> kind of tells you that we're not dealing with uh, kids from the Bronx.
0: No. We are not, indeed.
1: Well, they are a result of privilege, and you've got you've got to accept that. I think one of the differences between a New York band that came later that also had an equally privileged upbringing, Vampire Weekend. They didn't shy away from their background and kind of, and to be fair, like on the first album, kind of flaunt it a little bit in terms of the references and stuff like that to the Hamptons. So it's a funny thing because obviously you could throw something at the strokes, particularly how they portrayed themselves, that they were maybe a little bit fake in. Mm. Yeah. they were these rough rock boys. When you've come from a Swiss boarding school, you can't really go that you're hard lads from the wrong side of the tracks.
0: I mean, they're either going to end up as rock stars or supervillains with that background, weren't they?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's only people whose uh, wealth comes from diamond mines.
0: Yeah, indeed. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if
1: that'll make the edit.
0: <laughs> oh, it will, don't worry. <laughs> We've called him out before. He's a prick. Yeah, he is a prick. Not a fan of Bernie Sanders either.
1: No, but what we. Anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Okay, back to the strokes. So, they started gigging, and in 2000, they first came across Gordon Raphael, and uh, well,. I'll let Gordon Raphael tell the rest of this bit of the story. Uh, So in a 2002 interview with Sound On Sound, he said, One night in August of 2000, I went and saw two bands play at the Lunar Lounge. One was called Come On and the other was called The Strokes. Afterwards, I went up to them both and hustled them, saying, I have a studio two blocks away. Let's make a cheap demo, guys. Four days after I first met The Strokes, I was due to go to a party in Seattle and they needed some quick cash. So I made them a quick deal. I said, listen, I don't have a lot of time. I don't even want to spend a lot of time. I mean, you literally approach them, fella, but okay, (laughs) fine, whatever. But let's make a real down and dirty demo. We'll do three songs in three days and it'll be so cheap that you'll love it. That demo became their debut EP, The Modern Age. The three tracks on there were The Modern Age Self, Last Night and Barely Legal, all three of which wound up on is this it albeit re-recorded versions gordon Raphael obviously produced that the uk independent label rough trade picked up the demo and released them as the modern age ep as i said in january of 2001
1: so, so rough trades a man james enzacoff whenever you hear him talk about when he first heard the ep and that that it i mean to be fair those are three fairly fucking strong, strong tunes to be having on an EP that you're yeah. you're touting around. Of course, of course, they was going to be like fucking sign them up, sign, sign them up, yeah. sign them up.
0: Yeah, exactly. And inevitably, because of the quality of those songs, the EP generated them a lot of publicity, particularly in the UK. So, the NME named it as single of the week. They went on a sellout tour of small venues in the UK. They also supported number of bands including Guided by Voices and Doves on their tours of the U.S. And the success of the modern age, the buzz around them, basically led to a bidding war with the major Mm -hmm. labels. So RCA, Epic, and Interscope all wanted to sign the band. Their manager, Ryan Gentile, used that very much to his and the band's advantage. So in an interview with the BBC from the summer, he said... We knew that we wanted to own the first record and we asked the three labels. Two of them said no and one said yes. We own it. We can release it if we want. Anniversary editions, etc. It's all ours. We can put it out on our own label and it belongs to us. Not even Elvis or the Beatles own their own records. Well, we've talked about the Beatles publishing rights, obviously, Mm -hmm. and and other bands. So they weren't stupid. They weren't naive. No, and... Being able to
1: control your your masters on your debut album, fair play. Like, that's a hell of a deal
0: to be able to cut. Indeed. Especially when you've released one EP.
1: What what you can say, because obviously we were both uh, knocking about at the time and very much deep into what was coming out, there was a fucking huge buzz about, about The Strokes.
0: There was indeed. Hold on to that thought because, I mean, I imagine we're going to pretty much say the same thing about how we discovered the album, but mm-hmm. I want to come on to that when we do so but yes there was a massive massive buzz particularly in the UK so yeah March of 2001 they signed with RCA Records RCA for the recording of the debut album wanted them to work with a more established producer so they and Rough Trade sounded out Gil Norton who had produced the Pixies' Doolittle, a magnificent album, which I'm surprised we have yet to do.
1: I am actually quite surprised we haven't done it yet, but an odd choice. I mean, obviously, Doolittle's a a great album, and, you know, it it sounds really good, but it's not really that sound. It's not really that kind of garage sound to it. I can understand them wanting an experienced hand on the tiller for a brand-new band, but... It doesn't seem like a natural fit, and obviously, as as I'm sure you're going to go on to say, that that's how it proved.
0: So that's interesting. Oh well, and yes, obviously, because when I when I read that name, I actually thought, oh, that makes sense. Actually, I could see that working. And I guess RCA, at least, didn't perhaps know what sound they wanted the band to be. They'd heard the EP, but it, the EP came out of, came out of demos, mm-hmm. so they were probably thinking let's make this a bit more polished let's refine it a bit and having someone experience who's produced a classic that that was the way to go but um anyway that's just me
1: no i mean it logically it makes it makes sense but then with the hindsight of what this album actually sounds like you go yeah yeah that actually doesn't make any sense at all
0: yeah i see i see what you mean i see what you mean and well and the band very much <laughs> agreed mm-hmm. so they did three songs with gil norton And whilst there was a good relationship between The Strokes and Gil Norton, the end product was something that none of them were satisfied with. So I'm going to go back again to that Gordon Raphael interview with Sound On Sound. He says, I got a call from Julian saying, Gordon, we're scared. And I said, what are you scared about? He said, we don't know if we'll ever be able to get that sound back. I suddenly realized that they were thinking of the EP that we'd done as their sound. And Julian said, is it okay if we come back to your basement and try those tracks again? So basically, it wasn't a case of, we're going to ditch Gil Norton and come back to you for everything. It's like, let's just see how we go. Mm -hmm. Because RCA in particular were very reluctant to ditch Gil Norton and to go with Gordon Raphael. Because as I said, they wanted an, an experienced hand on the tiller as you as you wonderfully put it so it was a case of well let's just go back with Gordon record the tracks that we've already done with Gil see how they sound and they got uh, one of the RCA execs down to listen to the the output of those sessions and the decision was made there and then yeah this is the way you need to go so they did part ways with Gil Norton and they did bring Gordon Raphael back on to produce the album
1: Yeah, and from certainly what I've read as well, is that it's not that Gil Norton did a bad job or anything, it's just that the sound was too clean. Yeah. It wasn't
0: fuzzy enough. Which I am about to come onto. (laughs) So a few things about the sound that was created. Apparently, Julian Casablanca's stated ambition was that the album should sound like a band from the past that took a time travel trip to the future to make their record. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So, it has been widely speculated that each song was recorded in just a single take. Gordon Raphael basically said that's bollocks. So again, this is what he says from sound on sound. What we did that was different from the EP was to spend as many hours or days as was necessary to do a live mix of a song where everybody played amazingly well. The result was that the takes were much more rock solid and structured than on the EP. So they didn't do a single take, but what is true is that every track on the album is a live take. It's the band playing live rather than overdubs, etc. And then another thing that added to that was that, and this is part of Gordon Raphael's style, he was essentially mixing each take live whilst they were playing rather than just getting it down on the desk and then going back and, and and mixing it later so i always like to have the mix as i go along i feel if the band members hear themselves sounding like a finished record as soon as they've done the basic track they'll have a lot more trust in me and also will give them more confidence in what they're doing which makes a lot of sense when you hear it like that well and it, it gives
1: a a kind of live aesthetic to the sound as well which mm-hmm certainly is
0: borne out throughout the album really absolutely so you talked about fuzzy and one of the most distinctive parts of the stroke sound on not just this album but room on fire that followed it as well is the sound of the vocals the distortion effect on julian casablanca's vocals in an interview with six music from this July, again Gordon Raphael. He said, when I first played them the distorted vocals, Julian said, that's the ugliest sound I've ever heard. Please don't do that, because I'd put it at 10, nuclear devastation. He listened for a moment and then said, what if you dial it back a little bit? So we settled on number four. And well, that's all she wrote, so to speak. The rest (laughs) is history. Okay, so the album was in the bag. They went back on the road another headline tour of the uk and ireland that included slots at the reading and leeds festivals those slots they were originally supposed to be played in the radio one tent but they were upgraded to the main stage because it was basically feared that Mm -hmm. they'd have crowd problems in 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 the radio one tent which only held seven and a half thousand people and because of that buzz and because of that hype a lot more people wanted to go and see them so it's time to do how did i discover the album uh, I'm guessing we're going to be saying quite similar things here, Kev. So yeah. Did you discover the album?
1: So, I mean, we we were both living in the same house
0: at this point, <laughs> indeed, and sharing <laughs> copies of the NME. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's do this one as a conversation then. Yeah. I remember that NME when it was single of the week. And I exactly, we were buying The Enemy every week. And I remember we're having conversations before we'd heard any of it. Like, mm. oh yeah, here's The Enemy's latest thing. Is this the new gay dad? <laughs> exactly. Here's the next Campag Vela set. <laughs> Come on. And I saw, I think it was Peel that yeah. I first heard him on. And I almost remember thinking, shit, they're actually really fucking good. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I don't think it was last night. I think it might have been The Modern Age was the first mm. one that I heard. And I went... Mm. Fuck me. And I will hold my hands up and say that I didn't initially buy the album because somebody else within our house had purchased it. So if you're listening, Graham, yeah. um, (laughs) Thanks (laughs) thanks for lending me that album where I basically had it for for about six months.
0: So I, uh, well, before I get to the album coming out, I was at the Reading Festival. I saw that set at the Reading Festival. Mm-hmm. Weren't you at Leeds as well? Yeah, I was. So, you know, we'd both, by the time The Arm came out, seen them live as well. And then, so I didn't buy The album either, but I had acquired it by some other means. Yes,
1: there was some other means that you managed to get hold of the music that <laughs> Lars Ulrich would have uh, very much frowned upon. <laughs>
0: Indeed he would. Indeed he would. (laughs) We could could get into a big Napster chat. (laughs) We could. Well, it was actually MX, not Napster. Okay. One for the kids there. (laughs) So yes, an album where we were both very much in on the ground floor. Yeah,
1: definitely. Uh, Artwork, I guess. Really famous. Yeah. Well, we can talk about American Moral Panics, if you like. (laughs) <laughs> Go on. Yeah, the, the the cover of the album is a gloved hand lying suggestively on a posterior.
0: Yes, indeed. It was taken by Colin Lane of his then-girlfriend who had just stepped out of the shower. So yes, American Moral Panic. That is not the album cover that our American friends will be familiar with. New. So after some US department stores and record stores had refused to stock the record, fuck Hudson's. (laughs) They got an alternative cover in the States, which is a psychedelic image of particle tracks inside a bubble chamber. Apparently, Julian Casablanca said to Ryan Gentiles, I found something even cooler than the ass picture. (laughs) I mean, it's cool, but it isn't as cool as the ass picture. I mean, so the cover was considered too explicit. It's you don't even see a bum crack. <laughs> like, you don't even see a bum crack. It's it is a very sexy picture. It's suggestive, yeah, extremely suggestive, like, but it's it's not explicit. It, no, it's not explicit. I mean, can we just say as much as it is a classic album cover, very recognisable. There are massive Spinal Tap connotations <laughs> with it. <laughs> Smell the glove. Exactly.
1: <laughs> like so thinking of some of the covers that Roxy Music had in the seventies. <laughs> That's fair. Or or you know, um, you could have a moral panic about houses
0: of the holy with a naked yeah. child on the front, you know. That's fair. Uh, well, never mind. Or oh, we shouldn't talk about never mind when I get sued. <laughs> but the suggestion of, of a woman's arse is clearly far too far too much to handle. Indeed, clearly far too much to handle. It's one of the most recognisable album covers in the last 25 years. And surely, in the age of the internet, our American friends will be very familiar with the with the album cover yeah. that we've always been used to. Because it's better than your one. <laughs> it is, sauce. <laughs> <laughs> right, shall we get into it? Yeah, let's go. We start the album with the title, Track. And on the decision to uh, name the album, Is This It?, Julian Casablanca's told the NME... When we were trying to find titles for the record, it could have been called Take It or Leave It or any of them. But I thought it sounded cool in more ways than one. It's deep without being pretentious. I mean, it is going to sound really obvious since we're talking about the Strokes debut album, but it's Mm -hmm. unmistakably Strokes right from the off, isn't it?
1: Well, yes and no, is what I would say to that. So in terms of the vocal delivery, Julian Casablancas' sort of louche delivery, Mm. that's very Strokes. But yes. the the tempo of it is obviously not as redolent as other songs of of the album of what you would consider to be a Strokesian sound.
0: Okay, uh, I mean, sorry, I missed the Hive Mind, Ding Ding. I've also written looseness uh, in terms <laughs> of my <laughs> description of his delivery, but it, it is very, very much that. I mean, the guitar riff at the start is it's well ripped off from Where Is My Mind, mm-hmm. but who cares? It's a great guitar riff.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you get a nick from something, nick from something good. <laughs>
0: Exactly. But that bass line that comes in through the second and third, Jesus Christ, it's a phenomenal bass line, isn't it?
1: I mean, it's just walking all over the song.
0: Yeah. So, interestingly, uh, I've talked about why they named the album Is This It, but the actual chorus for the song was improvised on the spot. Julian Casablancas, again, from The Enemy, he says, how it came about is we had this song, and it was all done without a chorus. So I was like, I'll wing it. I'll figure something out. Then one day I sang that over the chorus and the song was done. Fair play. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, in terms of naming
1: your album, that, I suppose this may not have been their thought process or anything like that. And I could be reading too much into it, but given all the buzz and everything that had happened before. So th- again, unfortunately, I'm going to make another Arctic Monkeys reference, but the EP that they released just after the first album, which is Who the Fuck Are the Arctic Monkeys? Mm. You know, so people like listening to this album going, is this it? Yeah. To me, it seems like quite a knowing
0: title. Yes, indeed. But I think it also captures that sort of ennui and disappointment of that generation of, Mm -hmm. well, I'm in my 20s now. Is this this it? it? Yeah. Which we very much were. You know, we are the same age as these guys, basically. (laughs) I'm all in on this one. I really, really like it. Always have done
1: yeah it's it's great it's got a lovely build to it as we've talked about the bass just absolutely stomps all over this song and it's yes. fantastic and it doesn't hang around too long and the album itself doesn't hang around too long i am fine with the length of this album
0: 11 tracks 36 minutes yeah boom yeah i knew you'd appreciate the length of these <laughs> <Yeah>. songs <laughs> Right, okay. Uh, Shall we go on to the modern age? Yes. So, as I said, this was originally recorded for the EP. It was reworked, which is the version you hear on the album. The song itself is a lament about the idiosyncrasies of of modern life, basically. So, up on a hill, here's where we begin. This little story, long time ago. Start to pretend, stop pretending. It seems the game is simply never-ending. Rolling in the ocean, trying to catch her eye. Work hard and say it's easy. Do it just to please me. Tomorrow will be different. So this is why I'm leaving. It sounds to me like someone who's just pissed off with the exhaustion of having to try and conform to an idea of what society views them as. And if I've interpreted that correctly, I think it's a great way to follow on from that. Mm -hmm nonplussed air of of is this it to be honest
1: yeah it's it's the sound of someone who is sort of lost lacks direction in this modern age doesn't really quite know where where he's going what his life is about and that's why i'm leaving you know
0: yeah so there's this is something that we're going to come back to a lot or i am anyway i think there's a lot of lyrical depth In the same ways we talked about last week on the Stooges, there's a lot of depth in describing their experience. And okay, they aren't working class boys, as we've just said, but they were young fellas living in the city. And there's a lot of cleverness, I think, in the way they relate that experience on this record in a way that you and I responded to Mm -hmm. at that time.
1: Well, and I think it's something that they subsequently haven't received a huge amount of credit for. There is a depth to the lyrics and the the themes within this album that it's not really given any kudos for. And the album that we'll talk about next week very much is, given that weight. And it's possibly because of the sheer behemoth of the song that we will get to. Maybe it's obscured that somewhat.
0: Well, I think it's a little bit back to what you were talking about. I think they were seen as the image in many ways, and the fact that the image was seen us put on well they they were they were the poster boys of the revival of rock music and so stick him on a poster get it sold stick him on a t-shirt get it sold what you want us to listen to what your songs are about as well maybe i'm doing their fans a disservice there but it always seemed to me that there were more well and julian Casablancas, let's be honest he's a very very handsome man so he's a pretty boy yeah, so, do you know what I mean? It, it was very much about the image for a lot of people. Yeah, style over substance. Yeah, which is unfair to them, as you yeah, said. Yeah, it
1: is. It is unfair. And particularly with this song, to say style over substance is so unfair because, I'm sorry, that opening, the opening to this song is so Brilliant. exciting. Yes, it is. It absolutely gets its hooks into you straight away, and you you want to know where this is going. Yeah. Like, the
0: drums, the guitars. Julian Casablanca sounds fucking great so i think there's a desperation to his vocals we said looseness on the last one there's a desperation and angst here that fits the song theme perfectly
1: so from my note i said the delivery grows more frenetic oh
0: yeah okay throughout
1: the song and i get again i suppose that kind of speaks to the to the desperation uh mm-hmm. element of it but and like musically it becomes more frenetic and more Lost, and I think the way it ends as well. Like you've lost your way in the modern age, the, the the song kind of falls apart at the end. I love the way it just stops.
0: Yeah, it's brilliant. I love a song which just goes "fuck it off." <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not going to bother doing a like a fade out or anything. It's like done. <laughs> yeah, next song. And like you said, the way it starts with the drums and the guitar and and. <sighs> Something else I'm going to talk about a lot this week and next, the simplicity of the main guitar riff. It's two notes, really, mm-hmm. but it just drives everything forward. It's a phenomenal track, this.
1: Yeah, it's it, and as, as I said when we were talking about it earlier,
0: this is what grabbed me first. Mm-hmm. All right, shall we go on to Soma? Yeah, let's do it. So the title of this song is taken from the name of the fictional Ideal Pleasure Drug in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Mm -hmm. Soma is what they would take when hard times open their eyes, saw pain in a new way. It seems to be about people who take drugs in an attempt to fit in with the cool kids, Mm -hmm. basically. Somehow he was trying too hard to be like them, is another lyric in this. The lyrics are never literal. And I've spoken about this previously. I like that in a song. I like something where you've got to think about what does this actually mean? And you can interpret it in a few ways even well
1: yeah and i mean you know we've talked about the the title of the album sort of referencing a, a disenchantment with life in your early 20s in the city and that theme carries on through this the taking taking drugs just to fit in and that kind of thing it to be part of a scene or to be part of a group plays into that into that theme they do not get the credit for it for this they are similar to iggy's Dum
0: Dum boys yep which is unfair to them It is unfair to them. So what do you think of Soma? I think it gradually improves. Yeah.
1: There's a lovely counterbalance between the vocal delivery and the frenetic guitars. And it finishes really well with with fucking great drums.
0: So uh, I agree. It takes a few seconds to get Mm -hmm. going, this one. I've never been that sure about the opening guitar riff. But by the time I'm in a first chorus, I'm all in. And I agree, there's that great counterbalance between guitar and vocals this again is one where the vocal performance sort of grows in that freneticism mm-hmm. that desperation that you talked about and he's almost crying in anguish by the end of the song and once again you know 2 minutes 33 seconds so we're now 3 songs in and we aren't even at the 10 minute we aren't even at the 9 minute mark yet mm-hmm. we're less than 9 minutes in and you're already 3 tracks in and you've you know we've already been through through so much i like soma yeah i do i think it's i think it's a really strong song All right, barely legal then, which, as we have said, also originally recorded for the EP Mm -hmm. but reworked for the album. It's pretty obvious what this one's about. Uh, I want to steal your innocence. To me, my life, it don't make any sense. To his credit, it's not a song that Julian Casablancas looks back on with much of a sense of pride. Mm -hmm. So uh, in an interview with Creative Independent in 2018... He said, barely legal kind of makes me cringe a little bit. I get it. It's sassy and youthful and I don't judge it or think about it. But these days I make what I feel like I want to hear. I make things that don't register as high on my own personal cringe meter. But what that means to other people I can't say. I can only gauge it by the way it makes me feel or according to my own personal standards. So fair play to the man. You know, there's there's not many artists... That could speak so honestly and articulately, for that matter, ab- about the material that made them famous. Mm-hmm. So fair play. Listen, I'm not going to sit here and and be madly critical about this because I really like Barely Legal. I think, yeah, you look back 20 years later, the subject is a little bit it's, it's
1: uncomfortable.
0: It, is. thank you. Yeah,
1: it's like with with hindsight, it's very much like you kind of. Mm, I'm not quite sure about that. All the comments about about the lyrical content, because we've praised them for other elements, so we can't really just brush over that and go, yeah, that's, un- that's inconvenient to us. Yeah. There are elements to it that you go, yeah, that's not great. And, you know, as you say, fair play, he's recognised that. It's the writing of someone of that age. Exactly. But sonically... A note I've I've written here. So we're four songs in, Um this song sound this album sounds so urgent, like we've yeah. got to get this off our chest. And all debuts should have this kind of energy mm-hmm. because you know this is your opportunity to. It's your coming out party. Yeah, exactly. It's your quinceañera. It's you know,
0: it's <laughs> it's your Bach mitzvah. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, if you're not absolutely flying
0: out the trapdoors, then what are you doing? Although, to be fair, for five public school boys from New York, it's probably their debutante ball. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. It was too open a goal to not tap in. Sorry, I've just, I've just remembered the
1: um, Mr. Burns' son. <laughs> <laughs> She's
0: not done yet. Put her back in. It's her coming out. Oh, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> uh, sorry. Customary Simpsons reference. Customary Sim- Simpsons reference. Uh, and whilst we were talking about it, inappropriate and uh, misogynistic lyrics, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it,
1: you know the production choice, so the fuzzy sound, so it gives it a great kind of live performance aesthetic to it. And
0: yeah, it, and it ends so well and all. Like they know how to end a song. Absolutely. Yeah, a hundred percent. As well as the way it ends, I love the way it starts. You've just got that mm-hmm. really short drum fill, and you're straight in. I think the melody is incredibly catchy. And there's a really simple, again, really simple guitar riff that comes in and out, which is just, it just gives added depth to the song. Yeah, urgency. Urgency is a perfect way to describe it. I can't add to that. Really, really good. Despite my misgivings looking back, in hindsight, at the lyrical content, I am still a big fan of Bad Illegal. Okay, Uh, I've got nothing more to say. Okay, someday. Wow. Yeah, wow. So, a couple of facts. First, it was the third and final single from the album, released on the 23rd of September 2002. It reached uh, number 27 in the UK, also number 17 on the Billboard Alternative Singles chart. It's a song about realising that when you grow up, your friendships will drift apart. When we was young, oh man, did we have fun? Always, always, promises they break before they made. What a song. So, unlike some
1: of the other songs on the album, so it kind of has that lament for the lost friendships of youth, but it's also the someday element, so it gives it a, a positive that maybe maybe things might be better.
0: Yeah, there is a hopefulness to it. Yes.
1: Yeah, which which you've not you've not necessarily had thus far, and it it works really well for that. I mean, everyone in this song, everyone is on it. You know, like the first like I can remember that like the hair standing on the back of my neck when I first heard it. It was so exciting. You're like, fucking hell, who who are these? Like this is so good.
0: Yeah. So I agree. I have described this as if such a thing exists, a lo-fi wall of sound. No, I mean that's a good way of
1: describing it because there is a an absolute envelopment with the with the sound,
0: but it's not that it's not bombastic. No, exactly. What I really really like, I think it's a really clever way of structuring this song. The drums and the rhythm guitar are in a sort of like a rockabilly rhythm, just mm-hmm. driving it along. But then the bass and the lead guitar are much more staccato and jagged, and it just you wouldn't think it, but they go together so well those two different rhythmic styles. That it just yeah, as, as you said, the hairs on your back of your neck stand on end when you first hear it. It's another one that just starts. You've got a really simple drum riff, and then that unmistakable strokesy guitar riff comes in. It's um, we've talked a lot about his vocal performance, the angst, the anguish. It does give me that sort of heart weary sense of nostalgia just listening to the mm-hmm. way he sings it. A remarkable piece of work For five lads Recording their first record
1: And I mean That middle eight Where you have the bass And the drums And then The guitars come in And then the vocals Kick back mm. in I mean That's a that's such a lovely touch And it's mm. it's done so simply But It's absolutely perfect
0: Okay so I'd just like to talk About the video <laughs> mm-hmm. And here's a name We've said many times before And I'm going to say Quite a few times Today Directed by our friend Roman Coppola. Uh, If you've seen it, it's the band playing a fictional game of, well, in the States it's called Family Feud. Over here it's called Family Fortunes. Against the band Guided by Voices. And they lose. The Strokes lose. (laughs) It's a great song. And it's a good video.
1: It is a good video. It's not their most famous video, as we will come to. But
0: we will. I do remember it fondly. I mean, it was big on MTV too. Yeah. Not as big <laughs> as, as what we will come to soon. Indeed. But not yet. Because before we get there, we have a loan together. Indeed. Lisa said, take time for me. Dropping him down to his knees. Ah, chest down. A- any idea what it's about?
1: No, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> no idea. No <laughs> idea.
0: <laughs> I have heard that Julian Casablangas is a cunning linguist. <laughs> I'd say you were better than that, but you're not. No, I'm not. No. I'm not. Yeah, it is apparently about performing oral sex on his partner. Yes, it has that element to it, but it's, it's also that
1: they're having an entanglement. A what, sorry? An, an
0: enfranglement. Better.
1: <laughs> but... As the as the title says, that like they're alone, but they're together. Yeah, they are doing what they're doing, but it's not fun. They're not
0: really having a having a lovely old time, are Yeah, indeed. And I think the tone of the song reinforces that. There's a menacing air to it, an unsettling, spiky. Yeah, I like that. It's better than menacing. You've got that the guitar and the bass, which you know come in within through the verses. Uh, there's an absolutely brilliant guitar solo after the second chorus oh, yeah. as well. <laughs> Phenomenal stuff from Albert Hammond Jr. It's, I don't have a great deal to say about this. Yes, you're right about, about the subject matter. And I think, as I say, the tone reinforces that view.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, the only thing I would possibly add would be throughout most of the song, before you get to the guitar solo, it has kind of a wire sound to it. That It's that, mm. it's that kind of much more angular guitar sounds
0: yeah interesting interesting I hadn't picked up on that but th- yeah you're right actually a, g- a good comparison to draw
1: I mean I was listening to wire earlier today oh, so that, that's enough, why it helps
0: there you go okay but I don't have anything else to say about alone together i I, I like it
1: yeah I, I like it it doesn't blow me away but it's certainly not it's not it's not a bad song okay shall we go to the fireworks factory? I think I think we should. Itchy and Scratchy have got there. Poochie hasn't got involved. We're, we're all we're all good. Well,
0: Poochie died on the way back to his home planet. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm going to see
0: how many Simpsons references we can throw in here. I'm going to stick them all on Twitter as well. Well, when this
1: album came out, we're talking peak Simpsons as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Although it didn't take that long for it to really take a nosedive. The Simpsons. Oh yeah, that is. <laughs> Shall we talk about last night, Kev?
1: Yeah, we don't need to talk about Poochie.
0: (laughs) Right, last night, it was the second single. It was released on the 23rd of October, 2001. It reached number 14 in the UK, number 5 on the US Alternative Chart, and number 49 on the, come on, it's been a few weeks, let's go,
1: Eurochart Hot 100.
0: 100. Hey! I mean, come on, Europe, 49, you can do better than that. And can we also say a staple at every
1: indie disco ever since it was released?
0: Yeah, th- that's not a bad thing. No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that yes. that is true. It, indeed, it is true. So, the guitar riff and the drum rhythm oh, let's say, something of a debt to American Girl by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. <laughs> I mean, another song I really like. It, so you it's know. a belter. To be fair to old Tom, he was cool about it. He told Rolling Stone in 2006 that the Strokes took American Girl. There was an interview that took place where they actually admitted it. That made me laugh out loud. I was like, okay, good for you. It doesn't bother me. Fair play. I mean, Tom Petty has always seemed like a good egg. Yeah, he did always seem like a good egg. And actually, the Strokes in 2006 supported Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on their US tour. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all good. I mean... Who can blame them for nicking it? American Girl's an absolute belter, and so is this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an absolute
1: classic. It's got a great opening. The lyrics, uh, how it's delivered, the pitch. It's all absolutely perfect. And it's lyrically
0: hooky. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> you can't help but you know, when you're at the indie disco.
1: Everyone's belting this out.
0: Yeah, it's it's great. It's exemplifies what i've talked about a few times about the simplicity and the brilliance in that simplicity mm-hmm. the guitar riff it's a c chord played in octaves that's what it is it's nothing more complicated than that and the bass lines two notes it's a it, it's brilliant that's all i can say It's yeah, brilliant. it is and
1: um, even something down to the to the video i mean this is going to be the third the third Arctic Monkeys reference. And there's an, uh, there's more to come as well. Because, you know, you can clearly see how they were influenced from something as simple as this video when it came out. Everyone went, fucking hell. Why is no one thought to like do a live sort of performance but yeah. making it look like an old band? And that's exactly
0: what the Arctic Monkeys did. Precisely. So... On the video, apparently they initially didn't want to appear in a video, but they agreed to and were persuaded to by Roma Coppola on the premise that, yeah, it would be a simple one that would look like a performance on a 60s, 70s TV show, but they would perform it live rather than, than miming along. So it was mocked by a band we have both referred to in not-so-glowing terms before, Sum 41, on the video to their song, Still yeah. Waiting... To be fair, it is a funny video. I mean, it's a shit song, but it's a funny video.
1: Eric Wibley's finest.
0: Didn't he marry Avril Levine?
1: I'm sure he had an infranglement with Levine yeah. before she died, <laughs>
0: <laughs> according to internet legend. Brilliant. <laughs> Note Avril Levine is not dead. <laughs> no, Avril Levine is not dead. That we know of. At the time of recording, we are not aware that she has passed.
1: She is me. in Finland.
0: Is she actually in Finland?
1: No, have you not heard the conspiracy theory that Finland doesn't actually exist? No. Okay, so there's a whole there's a whole conspiracy theory that Finland is just a figment of the imagination.
0: Okay, this has now definitely made it to Twitter. Thanks very much. And uh, uh, there's all sorts of hashtags going out when this gets posted as well. well Liam
1: Brown might start following us until we get to the Twitter though. <laughs> Hashtag chemtrails.
0: <laughs> Hashtag nunchucks. Oh, I've got a lot to say. <laughs> right, should we come back to the song we're talking about? Right, it's a classic. It's one of the best songs of the last 25 years. It just is. And as you said about someday, everyone is absolutely on it. It's another one where the guitars work brilliantly together, the rhythm section is tight. And Julian Casablanca sounds phenomenal. He sounds anguished. He sounds frustrated. He sounds he sounds fucking cool, is yeah. <laughs> what he sounds. I don't have anything bad to say about this song. It's no. magnificent.
1: It comes to something when, and this it may sound as though I'm doing it a disservice, but it's not actually meant to be is that you wouldn't be surprised to hear it at Wedding Disco because it's that sort of well-known and universally yeah. beloved.
0: Yeah. Just after Real Gone Kid comes this one. That's <laughs> only at a Scouse wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that, by the way? Because Deacon Blue are not a Scouse band. No, but Liverpool loves Deacon Blue. So Real Gone Kid or Dignity. Dignity, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Deacon Blue were okay. I mean, Dignity's a belter, though. You know, you can't you can't lie. Real Gone Kids better, mate. Come on. I don't know. Should we <laughs> move on from Deacon Blue, chat? Yeah, I like Last Night. It's quite good.
1: Yeah, it is a belter.
0: All right, the next song is Hard to Explain, but I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> hey! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hard to Explain was the lead single from the album. It was released on the 25th of June, 2001. Reaching number 16 in the UK, which for a debut single, okay, they've had the EP, but for a debut single, that's pretty bloody good. Also reaching number 10 in Ireland and number 27 on the Billboard Alternative Mm -hmm. chart. So, interesting uh, note about the production and something I only learned... For the first time through this research I always thought the drum part in this was played on a drum mm-hmm. machine it is not really uh-huh it is Fabrizio Moretti playing live so again I'm going to go back to that interview that Gordon Raphael gave to sound on sound I just spent a long time sculpting the drums and processing them so that they sounded like a drum machine I was taking real sounds and messing around until something real sounded like something fake Yeah, I never, ever knew that. I always thought it was a drum machine.
1: No, I I mean, I've got a note about the sequenced
0: drums, you know, so, Hmm. fair play. Yep, not sequenced at all. Fair play indeed. Although, what I would say, like, really cleverly done, but wouldn't it just have been easier to make the sounds on, you know, a drum machine? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, fuck, I never thought of that. (laughs) Gordon, if you're listening... (laughs) Again, neither of us are music Mm. professionals, so ignore us. (laughs) Jesus, what a song this is. Oh, my God. That guitar riff, that non-sequenced drum Mm. part, the bass line, it transports me right back to 2001, and I get all nostalgic and fuzzy every time I listen to How to Explain. I love it. It opens
1: absolutely brilliantly. It continues that, and... The description I give to the vocal performance is blistering. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And, you know, we've been on a run of absolutely brilliant songs.
0: And we ain't finished yet. No, I know. So, yeah, I um, and perhaps my desire to be the sort of poetic one with my use of adjectives, I've perhaps jumped the shark a little bit here. But to me, there is a melancholic profundity to the way he sings this. All right, Chris Gow. (laughs) Fuck off! (laughs) That's all we've got time for this week. And forever, I'm ending the show. Goodbye. That's the end of album (laughs) clash. Not Chris Gow, because I'm actually talking about the song. Yeah, actually, to be fair. Not myself. No, the vocals are fantastic on this. I've said it once or twice before, but it's worth saying again here. It's not just the vocal performance, but the melodies are so catchy. Yeah. But they have an emotional depth to them. Does that make any sense at no, all? No, it
1: makes it makes perfect sense. There's a beautiful simplicity to what they're mm. doing, but that's not a criticism. No, because because there's a simplicity to it. It allows the the depth of the sound. It allows the the vocal perform. It doesn't take away from the vocal performance and it enables you to concentrate on the lyrics that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do for such a lo-fi album so like hard to explain like we've talked about these themes of ennui of being in your early 20s and being a bit lost and not knowing what's going on with life and again like it's hard to explain (laughs) you know it he has an existential crisis but he doesn't know how to solve it it's hard to explain
0: yeah exactly Again, it's another one. It accomplishes everything we've just talked about in less than four minutes. Ticks all my boxes. Yeah, it does. The final thing I'll say, just like I said on The Modern Age, I love the way this just stops. Yeah. Just stops. Done. Hard to explain. Finished. Great. Done. Okay. Shall we go on to the next track? Let's go. All right. Uh, Well, something we probably should have said right at the outset, but we hinted at it. As always, we are doing the UK release. So for us, and for everywhere in the world apart from the US, the next track is New York City Cops. In the US, unless you bought the vinyl version, you have When It Started as the next track. The reason for that is simple, and we've, we've mentioned it earlier. It's because it was deemed uh, that it probably wouldn't be the best idea to have a song critical of, of New York's police department in the aftermath of 9-11, when so many of their number had, had given their lives in, in the tragedy at the World Trade Center so they recorded the new song when it started which was featured as a b-side I think on someday eventually everywhere else in the world that is why they postponed the US release date from the 25th of September to the 9th of October and um, yeah when it started it's okay it's a fairly decent stroke song but it ain't New York City cops so, what do you think of New York City cops? I think it's fucking brilliant. I really, really do. There's a different tone, a different sound to it. It's a lot heavier than what you've heard before, certainly initially with the where the drum starts, and that it's a really, really chunky guitar if then you get to the bridge and the chorus and it's much more traditional strokes I'd say and again you've got that lo-fi wall of sound I think it's brilliant I've always loved New York City cops I gather from your question and from your expression that listeners can't see that you don't agree so it's it's not that I don't agree it's that I've
1: always had a not troubled relationship with the song but I've I've always been a little unsure how I feel about it I like the good punky opening I think Albert Hammond Jr.'s guitars just sound absolutely filthy mm. throughout it. The chorus doesn't really grab me, and I think of what's come before lyrically, it seems a bit a bit simplistic. This song.
0: Interesting. Do you know what inspired the song?
1: I, I'm not aware what in, what inspired the song though.
0: So I will allow Julian Casablancas to speak to that. In an interview with Vulture in 2018, he said New York City Cops was an overtly political song that came out of the news of Amadou Diallo. He was a Guinean immigrant who was shot and killed in 1999 by not one, not two, not three, but four plainclothes police officers who mistakenly thought he was reaching for a gun when he was just basically reaching for his wallet. So yeah, it came out of the news of Amadou Diallo and police brutality. But when it was taken off the album after 9-11, the political element got removed from the band's narrative. Now, that's not obvious from the lyrics of the song, and there's certainly other themes in there as well, around drug use, etc. But, I mean, the chorus is pretty unambiguous in what it's saying. I've always really liked the chorus, actually. I think the melody in the chorus is so hooky. I sing it, and I sing it, and I sing it. It just gets stuck in my head for days. I feel a lot more fondly about this than you do. Always liked it. I
1: mean, possibly the some of the subtleties in their lyrical content. Like, if you're going to call out New York City cops, and it, like, to be fair, the chorus does. Like, they ain't <laughs> mm-hmm. too smart. I didn't really get the political elements in it. It felt it felt a bit more lightweight. And what I will say is that it doesn't necessarily fit with the other themes of the album. I mean, obviously we've talked about difficulties in living in the city, so it sort of speaks to that, but not necessarily the other stuff. You
0: have a point there, but that isn't a big issue for me. I um, no, I mean, I, I really like it.
1: I don't think it's a bad song. It just maybe giving a preview to something I might be saying later.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I like it a lot. You're not so keen. That's that's fine. That's why we call it album clash, or probably we should really call it occasional disagreement about individual song clash. <laughs>
1: Mild distemper.
0: <laughs> Should we go on to try your luck? Yeah, let's go. Uh, apparently this was originally called This Life. Unclear whether or not they intended it to be the theme of the terrible programme in the UK about a bunch of lawyers who were all pricks.
1: So yeah, that w- was there a chorus about Egg? <laughs> <laughs> or the Welsh one? Well, I only remember Egg because he was then in Teachers and then The Walking Dad.
0: Well, there was the fella, your man that ended up in Pirates of the Caribbean as well. Yeah, the um, captain fella. And then the Welsh fella ended up in Midsummer Murders alongside Bergerac.
1: And I'm sure, I can't remember the character's name, but is like the brother of Tanita Tickardham. No!
0: Well, that is a miracle of love and hate. <laughs> <laughs> this is great stuff. <laughs>
1: So uh, because I've got second screen, I, I may well have to Google.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Whilst you're Googling, can I talk about trying your luck? Yeah, let's go. Right. Okay. So trying your luck, as I said, originally called This Life it is about the, once again, the complexities of being in a relationship, the games people play instead of speaking their true feelings, the dishonesty of men when they're trying to attract a woman. The signals don't seem right. It lasts for just one night. And then, I'm sorry that I said that we were just good friends. Okay, you're still Googling, so... His
1: younger sister is singer-songwriter, Tanita Tickadam. Oh,
0: well, there you go. What's his name, then?
1: Uh, Ramon Tickadam.
0: Fair play. Well done. Good knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, try your luck. For me, it's a bit of a come-down after the last three or four. I like it, but I wouldn't describe it as a standout on the album. There's a nice riff in the chorus. Again, I like the way there's a language style to the way Julian Casablanca sings the song. Um, there's another great Albert Hammond solo in it. It's good, but it's not spectacular. Hmm. Go on. I really
1: like it. Okay. I think it's got a really great bass underline, which holds it all together. It's a very simple guitar riff over the top, but I like how there's a balance between the disparate elements. As you said, the solo's great It's not overly long, it's not overly fiddly But I, d- I do like it
0: Okay, fair enough Yeah, I feel a lot more positively about the final track on the album I think,
1: I think we're both very positive about <laughs> yeah. this
0: So, take it or leave it Thematically, follows on really well from the previous track Because it's about jealousy, relationship dynamics, all that frustration Girls act too much, boys act too tough Enough is enough well on the minds of other men i know she was that's in the first verse and here's a bit of a link back to last week when we went through the stooges exactly as with not right the second verse flips those gender roles so it's boys act too much, girls act too tough. On the minds of other girls, I know he was. It's So I like that. It's no one's fault, it just is.
1: Yeah, the, we've had most of the songs from a male protagonist point of view, so it's nice to have a balance somewhere in the album.
0: It is indeed. So this one, again, it starts gently, but it just gets more and more and more frenzied as the song goes on. And...
1: Hive Mind. <laughs>
0: And, like, there's there's such anguish and angst in the way he's, he's, he's crying out at the end. He's going to let you down. It's, it's, I fucking love this. I think it's a great closer.
1: It's a frenetic, angry perform, vocal performance. Yes, it is. It's, yeah, the, it's someone who's lost control. Take it or leave it. Just take it or leave it. Again, everyone's on point. Everyone is performing to their highest standard. It It's great. And um, it's a brilliant way to end the album.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right, we're done. Yeah. 11 tracks, 36 minutes.
1: Flown through.
0: Hell of a ride.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really good way of putting it. For an album that's less than 40 minutes long, you have had a hell of a ride um there's not been a huge let up in tempo either no not at all you've belted through it
0: we have belted through it uh shall we belt through some reviews
1: yes but with um due preparation for to be annoyed
0: yeah he was at large <laughs> <laughs> right before we get to him Joe Levy in Rolling Stone wrote this is the stuff of which legends are made. The Strokes debut album is pure New York rock and roll. All grey pavement aggression wrapped up in black leather cool. The 11 songs speed by in just slightly more than half an hour. Each one so tightly constructed and urgently delivered that even the ballads seem fast. For now, the Strokes have mastered their style. They have yet to come up with the substance to match it, but the music leaves us no doubts.
1: Can't disagree with any of that.
0: No, indeed, can't disagree with any of that at all. We have already mentioned the 10 out of 10 review that the NME gave the album. In that review, John Robinson said, Simply put, the Strokes have every quality rock and roll requires from its finest exponents. And Is This it? It is where they come together. More than that, though, Is This It is a document of a group seizing a moment and making it entirely their own. There's nothing unnecessary here. Is This It is an album by a band that knows its strengths, knows its collective mind. It's a New York story, an LA story, a London story, anyone and everyone's story. Nice.
1: Yeah, again, that's a really good review.
0: So, that, before I go to the next one, those two reviews that we've spoken about then come back to exactly what i mentioned at the start that tonally this album is really uplifting it is all about swagger and exuberance and youthful confidence and speaks to the time in which it was recorded rather than the time in which in america at least it was released but actually it was an important part of the recovery i guess from what had happened at 9-11, here's something uplifting, here's something that can unify the city. Do you know, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, but it, did, it didn't need to be maudlin or introspective that this mm. is an album of youthful energy and vigour. Yeah. The city getting back on its feet and being very New York.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, not everyone was full of praise for the album. Uh, just very briefly, John Monks in Stylus magazine said, "As refreshing as this is, there's a shallowness to the album that prevents it from ever being put into the classic category." I mean, my Top Trumps results, mate, would disagree entirely with what you've just said. So, you know, there you go. Okay, shall we get to Nobby? <laughs> yeah, let's
1: let's let's hear what inane ramblings he's got.
0: Would you like me to end this feature, Kevin?
1: Well, it's like the two minutes hate in um, 1984 that we have to we have to endure it to be able to get on with the rest of the pod.
0: Very well put. I'm glad you said that because I'm not going to end it. <laughs> so, Robert Criskell, he was still writing for The Village Voice at this time. He said, Great groove band. End of story. I wish. The grooves extend towards infinity for one thing. Here the beats implode chasing resolving with funky brevity and gnarly faux simplicity their grooves carry melody too and not all of it not hardly the stroke's privileged formalism is annoying so too their delight in romantic dysfunction but they're smarter than the player haters (laughs) and he's written player haters oh god (laughs) a man of his age as well (laughs) who aren't smart enough to target these blatant shortcomings I still don't know what he thinks of the app. No, exactly. Well, he gave it an A-, so I guess he did like it, but there's absolutely nothing in the words that I've just read out that indicate whether that is the case. Right, and, like, I know we've talked about it before, but, like, fucking A-, minus
1: as though you're a teacher, you're fucking marking their homework.
0: <laughs> gonna... See me later. Oh, there's a see me later for next week, don't worry. Oh, God, I know that, yeah. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> shite. It's such a balance. <laughs> yes. All right, uh, enough of this nonsense. Shall I talk some legacy? Yeah, let's go. As we've said, it was pretty much instantly successful in the UK. Given the hype, that isn't surprising. Debuted at number two in the charts. It was certified gold before the end of the year in 2001. It was a little bit more of a slow burner in the States, so it only debuted at number 74 on the Billboard chart. But then in January, they appeared on Saturday Night Live and that, you know, saw them, their popularity increase massively. So by the end of February, it was certified gold in the States as well. Well,
1: and, you know, we talked about it before that even if they didn't necessarily have anything musically interesting going on, is that they were on Saturday Night Live, which is obviously a huge program, and they are a cool, pretty looking band. So
0: being on television was going to help. Not just being on television, but a New York band being on New York's flagship television program, Mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, following that success, as I say, it was certified gold by the end of February 2002 in the States. They then went on a world tour that included support slots for the likes of the Rolling Stones on their North American tour. They returned to Reading and Leeds in the UK in August of 2002, this time as, as headliners after one album that lasted for 36 minutes. That's wild.
1: <laughs> That's some set padding.
0: <laughs> so I didn't go to Reading in 2002, so I didn't see that set. Uh, I can't say whether they only played the 11 songs and then fucked off or not.
1: But they've not got a huge amount more to uh, <laughs> to play around with,
0: have no, they? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> In October 2003, they released a second album, Room on Fire, which I briefly mentioned earlier. Not quite as successful. It still sold around one and a half million copies, though, over the world. It's fine. I like Room on Fire. It's got some good moments on
1: it. It's, it's not as good as this album.
0: No, it isn't as good as this album. 2006 was their third album, First Impressions of Earth. I don't think it's great. I like it, but it didn't perform as well. You don't like it, and the critics didn't like it either. They had a five-year hiatus, then they came back in 2011 with Angles. The first single from Matt, Undercover of Darkness, is fucking brilliant.
1: And do you know what? Proper Oasis vibes. The lead single was so good, and then the rest of the album was such a letdown.
0: It was, and that's exactly what the critics said about it. Okay, 2013 was their fifth album, Come Down Machine. For that album, they pulled a complete media blackout. No promotion, no interviews, no nothing. I haven't heard Come Down Machine, I have to say. No, me neither. Uh, And then as we've mentioned uh, on a previous episode, uh, last year they released The New Abnormal, from which the lead single was one of our earliest uh, Video Killed the Radio Star picks. Indeed. That won them their first ever Grammy, incredibly, for Best Rock Album at the Grammys early this year. Wow. I like it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard The New Abnormal. I do think it's a good album. It's their best, certainly, since Room on Fire.
1: So I've not, I, I'll have to admit, I haven't heard the whole album. I've heard chunks of it, and what I've heard, I do like. Mm. It's
0: produced by Rick Rubin, so, you know, they were in very good hands.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, I will have to listen to the whole album rather than just listening to bits of it.
0: Yeah, it's good. You'll, you'll like it. What we can
1: definitely say so obviously the band is still obviously going but in terms of its greater legacy yeah and we've we've alluded to this before definitely in this country that we were emerging from as we talked about the travis robbie williams glastonbury you know with the death of Britpop. pop the, mm-hmm. there's not really a huge amount going on that's particularly exciting and the strokes whether they kick-started it or whether they just encouraged a and r men to go back out and look at bands that were playing with guitars and playing it fast and and loud
0: probably a bit of both yeah um but you said maybe it was just over here it it wasn't just over here you know what was what was guitar music in the states at the time it was the likes of sum 41 and blink 182 it was the likes of papa roach and puddles of mud it was it was so overproduced bloated no substance whatsoever shit mm-hmm. Uh, So, in a sort of retrospective review of the album from The Guardian in 2007, sorry, they said it was probably the most important album of the past 10 years. It prized the zeitgeist away from new metal, restored the preeminence of rattling Neo New Wave, and was the chief catalyzing influence on the Arctic Monkeys.
1: Which we've kind of said several several times. And, you know, without... Guitar music in this country had, and this this may well be a clash that we do at a later point, and I think it would be quite an interesting one to do, you had the sort of two poles of influence, which were Arctic Monkeys and the Libertines, and both of them, you can see that there is a debt that they owe to the Strokes. Definitely. In sound, in look. Yep,
0: indeed. So I just want to talk about the Arctic Monkeys a little bit more, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Sure. So there's three quotes I want to read from three of what would become the preeminent artists of the early, mid and late 2000s. And I'll start with Alex Turner. So Alex Turner said, I remember I used to play that first album in college all the time when our band was first starting. Loads of people were into them, so loads of bands coming out sounded like them. I remember consciously trying not to sound like The Strokes, taking bits out of songs that sounded too much like them, but I still loved that album. So, clearly an influence on on him and, mm-hmm. and the Arctic Monkeys. Brandon Flowers from The Killers, someone I'll talk about next week as well. Oh, yeah. He said of it, that record just sounded so perfect. We threw everything we were working on away, and the only song that made the cut and remained was Mr. Brightside. So it basically made The Killers realize they weren't there yet. We, this, this is what we need to now get to. The bar had been raised. We aren't competing with Green Day and Blink-182 anymore. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, shit just got real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then lastly, uh, another band we haven't mentioned yet, but one who definitely owe a debt to The Strokes, Kings of Leon. So their bassist, Jared Followill, he said the title track was one of the first bass lines I learned. I was 15 at the time. So again, uh, and Ed, you know, bearing in mind, it's only what, two years before they're coming out with their debut album, a profound influence on so much of what made the next 10 years of music.
1: Well, yeah, and like for, for the Kings of Leon, they very much followed the Strokes template in that we're not really getting much from America. Mm-hmm. Let's go to Britain. Let's try and establish a base there and then essentially recolonize our own country. And that that's exactly what they did.
0: They did. And then they supported U2 and tried to go stadium and went shit. You
1: ruined them. <laughs> As you two do. They ruin bands.
0: Well, we'll come back to that a little bit next week as well. <laughs> so, right, we've mentioned all those bands. There's more. So you mentioned the Libertines, absolutely. The White Stripes, even.
1: Well, yeah, and you've got the whole New York movement that's going on with this. Yeah. So you got TV on the radio, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you know, there's, there's loads of people. that It was the, the first break in the dam, if you like. Exactly. Yeah, it, it was huge, this album. It revived guitar music. I'm not really sure where guitar music is nowadays, to be honest with you. You know, the Strokes are sort of seen as the Elder Statesman. Kings of Leon, as we just said, went stadium. Alex Turner disappeared up his own ass. <laughs> Sorry, but he did. Whether you like Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino or not, it is such a self indulgent album. Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah, it's, it's difficult to say that, and I suppose that you're not going to get a period like this again because everything is available at the same time. Yeah. There's too much coming out at the same time, so you're not going to get a Strokes completely changing the zeitgeist yeah. because the zeitgeist is everywhere. It's anything that you want it to be. You have access to all of recorded music now.
0: That's very true. And also, people are so much freer to put out their own material that it is now much harder certainly initially for a and r men and record companies to mold and meld a band to fit a particular theme to fit a particular aesthetic so you will inevitably have more variety and more diversity as a result of that because everyone is creating more of what's due to them rather than what they think will sell lots of records
1: i think there's also an inherent conservatism particularly in like the live festival circuit as well yeah i mean how many times have you seen the red and leeds lineup where it's a rotation of bands that have been knocking around since this period for the last 20 years who are still doing headline slots yeah. and still doing the same yeah. same thing and it's the same coterie of artists it's it's really difficult for new artists to break through and be able to to reach that higher level
0: Muse, Kasabi, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. They're the, yeah. the go-to Reading headliners.
1: And then Eminem every couple of years.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, shall we stop
0: bemoaning the state of modern music because we sound like proper our ars fellas? Yeah,
1: we are We are proper our arses though, so, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, we let's move on.
0: Uh, I think I know where you're going with the next segment, but uh, what's your best song, what's your worst song? So it's not a bad
1: song. It's as I as I said when we went through it. It's not my favorite on the album. So New York City Cops is is my worst song on the album. <sighs> Best song, fuck me. I mean, who's your favorite child? Sunday was the fir- the first of their songs that I heard and thought it was amazing. The Modern Age is. Absolutely brilliant. Hard to explain. But I am going to go with the obvious. I'm going to be Mr. Obvious because it is a, it's It's just an absolute classic. It's Last Night. It's the best song on the album.
0: Okay, Johnny Obvious strikes again. It is, though. Um, all right. Well, it is an absolute classic. Yes, it is. Uh, okay, I'll go mine. Uh, so I'm going to go my worst song first as well. And for me, it's trying Your Luck. As you said about New York City Cops, I will say about this. I like it. It just feels a little bit lacklustre after the three which preceded it and the one which follows it. So, yeah, that's the only reason. But I've got to pick one, so it is trying your look. Best song. I mean, you're completely wrong about New York City Cops. It's one of my favourite songs on the album. It's not the best. I'm not picking that, but it's nowhere near the worst song on this album. So I give you that a head of wobble, mate, quite frankly. <laughs> Any of the three singles, Someday, Last Night, Hard to Explain. You can pick any of the three of them because they are all absolutely phenomenal. But I'm not going to be Johnny Obvious because for me, the best song on the album is Hard to Explain. There's a massive nostalgic thing for me in that, as I said, when we Mm -hmm. went through it. It transports me right back to 2001. There's a heartbreaking melancholy to this song, but at the same time, it's brilliantly uplifting. I adore it. It's my favorite song on the album, and that's why I'm picking it as the best.
1: Like it's it's so it's so difficult to pick to pick the best song on this album, so you know it's a perfectly legitimate choice.
0: Okay, uh, I think we're about done for this. Uh, for is this it then? We
1: are indeed. I I think.
0: Kev, just remind people what they need to research for next week's show, please. So,
1: uh, your research for next week is Interpol's debut album, Turn on the Bright
0: Lights. Okay, and uh, could you also please tell people how they can keep in touch with the show?
1: So, if you like to be embarrassed by uh, musicians uh, that you used to respect wearing uh, shite leather jackets with Research and Destroy on the back, then you may choose to look at a certain lead singer of the Stone Roses' Twitter. Whilst (laughs) there... Um, You may want to come to our Twitter page Where you can find our excellent links To our playlists And um, our lovely content At Clash Album If you like carefully curated quality content Then you can go to our Insta Which is at Clash Album Or if you're resolutely old school You can always send us an electronic mail At albumclash at gmail dot (laughs) com
0: Oh, very good Yeah, um Never meet your heroes. I've never met Ian Brown. I'd be terrified too.
1: Well, I made the mistake the other day of scrolling through his uh, Twitter feed. I mean, we're we're talking chemtrails. We're talking all. Yeah,
0: we've done it. We've did it. We did a whole thing. You're like, you stopped me.
1: I know. (laughs) I may. I I couldn't help myself the other day because I was I was pulled in by what I may talk about next week.
0: (laughs) I did wonder why you were wearing a tinfoil hat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh dear okay yeah don't follow Ian Brown on Twitter because he's fucking nuts he'll just disappoint you <laughs> yeah exactly he will indeed uh, but yeah thank you very much keep in touch as we always say subscribe to the show on whichever platform you listen to podcast leave a rating leave a review tell us what you want us to cover tell us what you think of the show all that stuff you need to listen to Interpol for next week as Kev said until then, be excellent to each other. I've been Tim, I've been Kev, and we'll see you next time. Ciao, ciao, Wild Island Rule.